My lesson today will be on Matthew chapter 28, so if you want to turn there, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, For those of you that are visitors, we've been going through the book of Matthew. We're coming to the very end, and this is good today because we're going finally make it to the resurrection. I've told stories before. Um, For example, at Word of Life, where I teach sometimes, they will bring in a guest pastor and they will preach through and teach through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they almost always leave Jesus in the grave because they, you know, a lot of these pastors, they bring too much to the table and then they run out of time. And so at least we are going to not leave Jesus in the grave like has happened in so many different classes. If you think that's bad, years ago, Suzanne and I were talking about this when we were driving over here today. The first time I taught over at a Bible college in um, Oregon, I was teaching on creation. But one of the other speakers that week was teaching through the book of Acts. And he was a missionary, and he told lots of stories. And I remember sitting in the back um, waiting to go on and teach my last session when he was in Acts chapter 5. <laughs> and I thought, well, he didn't exactly make his way uh, to the end as well. Maybe he at least got through Pentecost, but that's about it, you know. So there are a tendency sometimes for people to still not teach all the way through. So this time we'll look at the first 15 verses in chapter 28. Next week, we will finish that off. And if you want to know what happens after that, well, then the Sunday after that is 4th of July. I don't know how many people will be here for 4th of July, but we're going to do America's Godly Heritage on that day. And so that will be the case. And so we'll continue on into the summer. But this is an opportunity for us to look briefly, and I do mean briefly, at the issue of the resurrection. Of all the Gospels, you probably have fewer verses dedicated to the resurrection in the Gospel of Matthew than anything else. Uh, For those of you that are old enough to remember the old uh, dragnet, just the facts, ma'am, although apparently Joe Friday ever never actually said it that way, uh, Matthew is that way. I mean, we get all of maybe ten verses on the resurrection. You go to the Gospel of John, you get two full chapters about that. Even in Mark, you get at least the story of the road to Emmaus. In Luke, you get 53 verses. But Matthew, he's pretty short. Um, Jesus dies. He's raised from the grave. That's it. And then next week, we'll, of course, talk about Jesus speaking to them in Galilee. So there are certainly a number of things that we can pull out of these few verses, which is exactly what we'll do. And then again, for those of you that are visitors, what I always like to do is when we finish teaching through what the church encourages us to teach, to do something um, in terms of application. So we have what's called Ask Kirby. Well, yesterday at the ICR Discovery Center, we had a few questions, so I'll see if I can try to answer a few of those today. If you were not at the ICR Discovery Center with us, well, good news is we'll give you a little bit of an update on that as we conclude. Well, let's, if we can, go to Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 7. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. 
He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he laid. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. See, I have told you. And so we now have just the first kind of part of this story, which is, in some respects, just in brief outline by Matthew. But even so, I think we can pull together a couple of things. As I've mentioned, each one of the four Gospels tell us something about the resurrection. This is actually the shortest passage. Uh, I think Matthew, first of all, he's just kind of given you just the basic facts. Jesus rose. End of discussion. But also, he is writing this to Jewish people, and he wants to spend more time talking about the kingdom of heaven, which is, of course, the theme that runs through this. We see that in all of the Gospels, we recognize that it is the women who find the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene is named among each one of them as well. And then... This is, I think, so striking because Lee Strobel, if you're familiar with him, he wrote the book, The Case for Christ, and others have made the case that this is so accurately history because if this was a made-up story, there is no way that a Jewish writer like Matthew writing to a Jewish audience would have the first people to see Jesus be women. I hate to say that, but the reality is in that culture, women were not seen as reliable witnesses compared to men. And so this illustrates that they are giving you accurate history uh, in terms of that as well. Now, we also see, as I mentioned just a minute ago here, that there's an earthquake, there's an angel, and look at the reaction. Immediately, we see that any time a divine being shows up in Scripture, what happens? Humans are scared. Most of the time they're on their face. They are terrified um, because their presence is terrifying. Not because necessarily God is scary, but because the majesty of any divine being causes us all to just kind of fall on our knees, sometimes fall on our face. And here, Matthew, trying to describe what this was like, uh, says the angel's bright white clothing, uh, if nothing else, was kind of like lightning. That was the best illustration he could use in that day of what it would be like to see an angel. Now, we've seen a lot of movies over the years where, you know, it's, uh, angels show up and everybody just thinks they're human beings. And there are some times in Scripture where, yes, humans um, are really angels in disguise and angels may disguise themselves. But if an angel shows up the way an angel normally is, you're on your face. And that's exactly what we see here. And given the fact that the guards were terrified, they no doubt were either the temple guards or I think more likely probably were the Roman guards who had seen a lot of things. These are not the guys to normally be too scared, and that shows what it is. Now, I remember reading this. The first thing I see is the angel is sitting on the stone, you know, stone rolled away. What does that mean? Maybe nothing, but some have suggested that maybe that was to show victory. Uh, again, uh, one of the commentaries that I was looking at said, when ancient kings won their battles, they would sit on their thrones as a public statement that the battle was finished. So there is some indication maybe that Matthew mentions that. It's kind of a side note if you think about it. don't care if the angel's standing or sitting, but he suggests, at least one commentator suggesting maybe that is the idea that, again, we've overcome death and we have victory over death. You can take it for what it was, but I thought it was kind of interesting. I never really understood why the angel's sitting on the stone. Why isn't the angel standing or floating up above? Well, that's at least one spectacular thought. 
Now again, look at this. Although the guards also saw the earthquake and apparently also saw the angel, the angel doesn't come and speak to the guards. The angels simply speak to the women. If nothing else, the guards trembled, froze in fear, appeared like dead men. Can you imagine just being so scared that you just faint dead away? I mean, it just almost looks like you are dead. And to the women, the angel now says, do not be afraid, completely ignores the guards. And so it was the women to whom the gospel was first entrusted. Isn't that amazing? I think there are some great implications of that. One of uh, which, of course, is that the very words that were said to them were, he is not here for he is risen. Now, I don't know, how many of you have ever been to Israel? Have you ever been to the Garden Tomb? Some of you have been to the Garden Tomb. Um, we don't have uh, Catherine Liu here, but she actually was one of the tour people for the Garden Tomb. She stayed over there for... Are you there? Well, then you've got to tell your story a little bit later, right? How, you were there for a month, weren't you? Yes. Yes. And so, again, afterwards, everybody go up to Catherine. She can tell you the whole story. Uh, she's teaching both in English and Chinese. There he is. He's in the back. So, again, I wanted to point her out. Doesn't this look familiar? Every day you were taking people there, and that's the door that appears to the garden tomb. And, of course, it's the message we proclaim at Easter. For he is here, not here, for he is risen. And so that is the good news that they receive as they then go and uh, are ready to share that with the disciples. Um, if nothing else, what we see here is that it illustrates that the resurrection changes everything. It's not really a surprise if they had been thinking about this because Jesus had told them, and I've given you a couple of indications as we worked our way through the Gospel of Matthew, that this would happen, but they simply did not understand, and the mission was over. They thought they were participating in the ushering of the kingdom, but now when the king is dead, it's like, well, then they have given up. The disciples are scattered, uh, they're fearful, and yet now the women are going to bring them very different news. The angel just didn't tell the women that he had risen. They didn't go and show him, show them the empty tomb, the place where he lay. And these women are testifying to the fact that Jesus is dead because they had been actually there with Joseph of Arimathea. And as we also learn in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus was there as well. We don't see that in the book of Matthew there. Uh, they had actually buried him. So they now know that he was dead. They know they wrapped him in some uh, cloth and spices and were coming back to finish the job. And there's nobody there. And so that is the case as well. Why had they gone? Best estimates we can pick out from the other Gospels. They maybe came to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. But they are the ones that know he was dead because they did that. And the angel now told them to go tell the disciples that he is risen. And now they're to go back to Galilee so that they can actually spend time with him, which we'll read about next week. I thought it was interesting, though, because it, as I mentioned just a minute ago, significant that Jesus used certain people to spread the gospel. We tend to want to pick the best and the brightest to market our particular idea, to promote our particular program, uh, to encourage others. But think of this. Jesus chose unschooled individuals, fishermen, uh, maybe even others that were involved in a variety of other activities to be his disciples. 
He chose women to be his first witness to the resurrection. And I think it's one more illustration of how Jesus chose people that um, we may not have taken seriously, certainly in the first century would not have taken seriously, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. We see this later on, of course, emphasized in the book of Galatians by the Apostle Paul. So let's go on and pick up a couple more verses very quickly, because at this point then, verse 8, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples, and behold, here's a switch, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So in addition to not only seeing the angel and the empty tomb, now they see Jesus. And there are, of course, many stories of the disciples seeing Jesus which we see in the other Gospels. But Matthew decides to keep it very simple because all he wants to do is build to the crescendo, if you will, of what Jesus told them to do in Galilee, and that is the Great Commission. But nevertheless, we see that they left the tomb, great fear, ran to tell the disciples, uh, think about this, they're the only ones on the planet, the only ones in the whole world at this moment that know that Jesus has risen and the excitement that they must have had They knew yet that he had defeated death, and yet they had some fear, because it talks about that fear as well. They'd experience, think about the fear you'd have. Earthquake. Uh, Fred just walked in. He was in an earthquake the other day out in California. Uh, Some of you that uh, grew up in California like I do know what the earthquake moves quite a bit. You know, it's foot massage for some, but it's pretty scary sometimes when things start falling off the shelves and have first an earthquake, then an angel. Yeah, I think you'd be a little bit fearful. And at this point, they're fearful. But at the same time, they have great joy because they recognize now that Jesus is not dead. He's risen from the grave. They're, of course, wanting to share this good news. And I think it's a great illustration of how we should have that same enthusiasm. I put on here, you know, when you see a great movie, matter of fact, up here a minute ago, we were talking, at least a few were talking about the TV show Loki. Okay, so everyone wants to tell everybody, did you see it? Did you see it? You know, or sometimes you see a good restaurant. Oh, you got to go to this restaurant. You know how we get so excited telling people about a great movie, a great restaurant, um, the chosen, the TV show, whatever it is. We're just telling everybody about that. I think the same thing, if we get that excited about sort of day-to-day things. We should also have that same level of excitement, shouldn't we, about telling people that Jesus rose from the grave. And I think that's my application point as well. So again, they're on their way to tell the disciples, and guess what? Jesus. This must have been pretty exciting for them, because he had not appeared to the disciples yet. And now he's appeared first to the women. And they're humbled and awed. It talks about taking hold of his feet. That was kind of a Middle Eastern way of saying, we honor you, we worship you. It's like falling at your feet, taking hold of your feet. This is an act of humility, an act of service, an act of honor. And they worship him. And really just this whole idea of resurrection, they're still getting their categories all kind of mixed up. Because I think my next slide talks about the fact that if you go to the world that they lived in at that time, the first century, in this uh, Mediterranean world, there were not other cultures that believed in the resurrection of the body. 
there were some that sort of believed in more of a kind of almost a reincarnation idea. By contrast, it was the Jews who did believe in a bodily resurrection, except for the Sadducees. But the Pharisees and almost all the Jewish believers, except the Sadducees, believed in resurrection. But, here's the but, they believed that would happen in the last day. A good illustration of that, you might put this in your notes and look it up, because it's interesting that when Jesus comes and tells Mary and Martha that I'm going to raise Lazarus, they say, well, yes, we believe that will happen in the last day, but they didn't believe that it would happen until then. You see the point? So there, even they, believing in a bodily resurrection, didn't think it was going to happen right then. And so their categories are getting all kind of confused instantaneously, but they can't deny the reality because they have essentially Jesus right before their very eyes. For them, the resurrection was an eschatological event, you know, a future event, something that would happen at the end of the world in the so-called day of the Lord. But the idea of a bodily resurrection at the time was simply unheard of. They would have thought this would have happened in the end times, at least at some level. So we see, again, a little bit of fear, excitement, and possibly a little bit of confusion when it sort of rattles their theological cages, is that. And, of course, Jesus then tells them the same thing that the angel had told them. Uh, he didn't need to appear to them. They were already running to tell the disciples, but this just gave further verification of that as well. And not only did Jesus solidify their belief with evidence, but he also reminds them of their relationship with him. And so, again, very significant. By the way, as I mentioned just a minute ago, if you look at the other Gospels, sometimes I have people say, why do we have all the Gospels? Well, because Matthew was just going to write to the Jewish people, give them just the basic facts. John writes to go and explain that Jesus really was the Son of God, he really was the Messiah, he really is God incarnate, and gives you two full chapters on the resurrection and post-resurrection experiences. Mark, who also was one of the first Gospels, there's real debate whether or not Mark was the first Gospel or Matthew was. Uh, most seminaries would say that Mark was, but some of us think it's possible Matthew was. Mark at least tells the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus seeing Jesus. So they all talk about different places and times in which Jesus appears to them. But Matthew just eliminates all that because he's just got one focus, and that is the Great Commission, which he does. And as a matter of fact, even in the book of Acts, written by Luke, you know, Luke wrote Act, uh, Luke and then the book of Acts is kind of Luke part two, says that over the course of 40 days, Jesus offered many convincing proofs of his existence. But Matthew just focuses on this one particular event. And if nothing else, wants to focus again on the fact that he appeared once to the women, then once to the disciples in um, Galilee, leading to what we'll talk about next week in terms of the Great Commission. It's kind of interesting. You've had three agonizing chapters talking about, you know, Jesus foretelling his death and what he went through first with Caiaphas and then with Pilate. And after all of this, you've got really about ten verses uh, to talk about the resurrection and maybe consistent with the fact that he really just wants to focus on one thing, the kingdom of God. 
Now, we could end there, but I thought just for another minute or two, let's talk about the addition of a couple of verses here. And that is, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he, you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this very day. And so this kind of parenthetical addition was there because Matthew, writing to Jewish people, recognized that some of them had heard one of the first attempts to try to explain away the resurrection. The disciples stole the body. And it seems kind of random, it interrupts the flow, but they're not just there for accident because he was really trying to do, first of all, an answer to, you've heard this myth and it's just a myth. You've heard this conspiracy and it's just one of those conspiracies. Have we had any conspiracies lately uh, that turned out to be nothing more than a false conspiracy? Well, yes, okay. But I think he's also doing this to do a real contrast with everyone else because you have a contrast, first of all, with... The women, a contrast with the guards and chief priests. And next week, of course, we'll talk about the contrast with the disciples themselves. And so it's a reminder that even in that first few hours after the resurrection, there were people trying to dismiss the resurrection. So we shouldn't be surprised there are people today that try to dismiss the resurrection as well. Um, and when he tells a story, when the guards found out about the resurrection, they went to the chief priest to report what was happening. Uh, they were witnesses to the resurrection. Earthquake, angel, empty tomb, whether or not they saw Jesus, not so much sure. But they certainly knew that what they were now being told to say was not true. But they went to the very powers that wanted Jesus killed in the first place. Uh, they were the chief priests. They were just really trying to figure out, let's keep this revolution from taking place. Let's try to keep it under a guard here. So we recognize these individuals are already going to get in trouble for having lose the body. Uh, if they were Roman guards, which I think they were, they might have been executed for losing the body. So they're in a really bad situation for sure. And so instead of responding with faith and even repentance and saying, we have to now believe in Jesus because he really was able to overcome death. They instead lied to save their own skin. And so sometimes we wonder, why does somebody believe such a false view and reject the gospel? Because it happened in the first century by people that actually saw some supernatural events. And again, verse 15 says, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Even to this day, there are people that don't believe it. Uh, there every year are Christian groups, Campus Crusade now called Crew, that lots of times in these student newspapers will say, we believe at Easter time, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And then they will have a list of the Christian professors that are associated with that. And I've seen in all sorts of student newspapers then atheists posting, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The disciples stole the body. Jesus just swooned on the, on the cross. And then once again, um, even though he was whipped and he was crucified, he somehow woke up in the grave and appeared to his disciples as Lord of life. And all the rest. And so even to this day, we have people that come up with all sorts of theories 
One of which, of course, which actually was started in the first century, that the disciples must have stolen the body. And so we have to remember that uh, in some ways this illustrates that they really are giving true history. As Lee Strobel and others have pointed out, a woman's testimony was not considered reliable. And the fact that it's there shows that they are, Matthew, he's just telling you the facts. It was the women. Yeah, we would have, if we had written this different, we would have had men. Uh, we might have even had Roman guards believe in it or something. But the bottom line is, that's what it was. Uh, and frankly, people would have been more likely um, to believe the guards' story. But the story just didn't ring true. Uh, the men were actually usually believed over women, but the guards' story was so far-fetched. If you... Um, actually had the disciples stole the body. How did you let that happen? Did you fall asleep? Uh, were you just not paying attention? Uh, did you lose track of where the uh, particular tomb was? I mean, it just didn't pass what I call the straight face test. And more importantly, how would the disciples have moved the stone? If you've seen the stones that have been identified in some of these tombs, these were heavy stones that wouldn't have been easily moved. And how could you have even stolen it without waking somebody up? And especially if your whole purpose was to guard the tomb, why would you even sleep on the job? Because you would have been executed by Pilate himself and his own guards. And frankly... Do you really believe that the disciples stole the body? What were the disciples actually doing after the crucifixion? They were scattered. They fled. Why would they risk their lives to steal the body afterwards? And even if they did steal the body, they then come to the very same place, Jerusalem, and preach. Peter preaches on the temple steps on Pentecost that Jesus rose from the dead and is preaching what is known as a lie, why would then all of the disciples, with the exception of John, die martyrs' deaths for what they knew was a lie? And so, in a sense, Matthew leaves, leaves both of these stories out there. Which one do you believe? And makes a choice in that regard. If you find yourself saying, I'm kind of interested in some of that, maybe as I think about how I might present this to my friends, neighbors, and co-workers, I mentioned Lee Strobel's book, his book, The Case for Christ, has interviews with all sorts of individuals. Um, one of those is Gary Habermas, who's been at Liberty University, kind of one of the largest and best-known evangelical scholars on the resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection. You can read that chapter as well. Josh McDowell, of course, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, now has put together a completely updated and expanded edition. The book's a lot thicker it was when I got mine back in 1973, um, and also includes material by Sean McDowell. And if you want to come back to this whole idea of the disciples, this particular book by Sean McDowell was his doctoral dissertation. Because lots of times we've said, think about this. These disciples, if they stole the body, knew that it was a lie. And if they knew it was a lie, would each one of them go out and die a martyr's death? There's some evidence even that maybe John finally died a martyr's death, but if all, anyone, he might have died in exile in Patmos. We lose track of him. We know that Matthew probably died in Ethiopia in a horrible death that I will not even mention what he went through in Ethiopia because it's just before lunch. 
Uh, there's one small tradition that said he died instead and was killed in Armenia where he was flayed alive. So I won't even go into all the things. These are, this is a picture here of P- Peter being crucified upside down. And not one of them said, okay, this was all a lie. I mean, if nothing else, this very, very scholarly book by Sean McDowell that goes into incredible detail on the fate of every one of the apostles illustrates again why Matthew says, does anybody seriously believe the disciples stole the body? No. And so, good, just a great uh, conclusion of Matthew 28. Next week, we'll talk about the Great Commission, and then we will have finished uh, the book of Matthew. But I thought just for the last few minutes here, I would get into the issue of Ask Kirby. Now, as we come into the summer, uh, you can ask all sorts of questions. So we have, don't we still have those back there? I think we have the sheets that you can fill out and ask Kirby questions. So if you want to ask some tough questions, put me on the spot. People seem to love to do this in the class. Or if you go to our PrestonwoodExamine.org, you can ask the question there or even leave it on Facebook or grab Suzanne and write it on a piece of paper, and we'll take that. But yesterday, we, for those of you who were with us, and I think we had 42, didn't we? 42 people at the ICR Discovery Center. And uh, Jeff, by the way, what a great facility you work in. Isn't that something? I mean, again, if you would like to ask other science questions, he can certainly answer them. But one of the questions that came up was, why do people still believe the Big Bang? Because we watched this video in the planetarium, and it talked about all sorts of things that don't work. You might remember, if you're watching yesterday, those of you there, they talked about these spiral galaxies. And if the universe is billions of years old, the spiral galaxies would have spiraled into each other. Remember that? And he uh, gave us some very good reasons why that didn't work. And as you were looking at different astronomical phenomenon, uh, they were in many cases pointing out that if indeed the Big Bang hypothesis is really true, then what about this? And there was a lot of what about questions. You might remember that. There was another point that they made, and that is, remember when they were talking about the Hubble telescope? The Hubble telescope, of course, is orbiting the Earth, and that is a telescope that allows us to see far into space. And at one point, they talked about, uh, years ago, Hubble telescope focused on the darkest part of the sky, where there seemed like there was no stars at all. Remember they talked about that? Now, they were talking about some of the more recent ones, but I think the first time they did this was back in 1995, and they looked in a very darkest, where they were convinced there was no light that could be perceived. Now, we're talking about a really small piece. If you've got a, a coin, if you've got, for example, a penny, um, to give you a sense of what they were looking at in the night sky up there, maybe by your uh, Big Dipper off by the edge, they hold it out about like that, and the part they're looking at would be like the eyeball of Abraham Lincoln. So we're looking at a really small part of that sky. And uh, in this particular case, back in 1995, they spent 10 hours looking at it. And you've got to realize the telescope's moving, so they've got to take a picture, take a picture, take a picture. So anyway, and when they finally then looked at that picture, they found 10,000 galaxies out there further where they thought was completely dark. More recently, they've gone to what's called deep space, a place where they think some of the remnants of the Big Bang arc, as you see some of these red planets, and they're just finding 
the universe is bigger than we possibly could have imagined. So my argument is, if God is bigger than the universe, by definition, your definition of God is much too small. Okay, do you get that kind of idea? And if you find yourself saying, okay, that was a great video to watch, but I'm kind of interested in reading a book. Or maybe I would like to get a book that I can hand to my skeptical atheist friend in the neighborhood who really likes science. And so I thought I'd end by just talking about this book because we've done some wonderful interviews with Dr. Stephen Meyer. Uh, First of all, Ph.D. from Cambridge University. And the book is entitled Return of the God Hypothesis. Now, what's the God hypothesis? Well, a couple of centuries ago, there was a very reasonable argument that everything we saw in nature was arguing for the existence of God. When you look at Romans 1, remember when Pastor Graham was preaching through Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes can be seen in nature? And a man by the name of William Paley even argued that uh, what he called the watchmaker argument, that if you were walking through a field and you found a watch, You would say that a watch is very different than a stone or a twig. And a watch would imply what? A watchmaker. And you wouldn't be able to explain a watch by natural phenomenon. Now, of course, our atheist friends have said, yes, but now we've got Charles Darwin and we've got evolutionists and we've got all sorts of things. And so they dismiss this idea that design implies a designer. And Richard Dawkins, the head of uh, the so-called New Atheist, wrote a book called The Blind Watchmaker. He says what looks like it would be designed actually happened by chance. I would suggest to you that if you were to go to Willow Bend Mall to a jewelry shop or you were to go to Stonebriar Mall to a jewelry shop and you were to walk in there and say, where did these come from? And somebody said, well, there was actually an explosion in this building and these watches were manufactured just by this random explosion. You would say, "Okay, you are pulling my leg. And if the guy was acting seriously, you'd be looking for somebody to put him in a padded cell. Right. But nevertheless, that has been the case. There was a belief by the end of the 19th century going into the 20th century that we've dismissed the God hypothesis. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way. And the three arguments that he makes in the book, and I'm summarizing a very thick book in a couple of minutes, is the first argument is, is even if you accept that the Big Bang is true, it tells you that the universe had a beginning. Now, the uh, atheists in the past believed that the universe was eternal, so you didn't have to ask where the universe came from because the universe has always been here. But once we began to have people say, no, the universe had a beginning, then it raises a very good question. What happened before it began? Uh, Because, after all, Genesis starts with what words? In the beginning. There was a beginning to the cosmos. And, of course, they argue that even time and space was created with the Big Bang. And so this idea of there being a beginning to the universe really puts you back to a belief in the existence of a creator to actually have brought it into being. You know, cause and effect. What was the ultimate cause? A prime mover? That would be God. So that would be your first argument, you know, that there was a beginning to the universe. 
The second one is back to this idea of design. As astronomers and cosmologists have begun to measure all the physical constants and all the things happening around the universe, you recognize that everything's just like a finely tuned set of dials. Uh, Some of you, when I say dials anymore, I realize that's my generation. It's not the millennial generation. You remember when you used to have to use a dial to tune in your radio? Suzanne still has one where I have to use a dial to tune in the radio. Or maybe you remember something else. Remember when, did you have rabbit ears? Uh, uh, Neil and I were just talking about that. Do you remember you'd have the rabbit ears on the TV and you'd have to move them just right and you get them just right. Sometimes you put aluminum foil up there. Sometimes I'd be holding the rabbit ears and my dad said, just stand there. I said, well, I can't watch the TV. <laughs> you remember this? Okay. Well, that is child's play compared to how close and finely tuned the universe is. It's like a room full of dials, and every one of those dials is perfectly set. A little to the left, a little to the right, you don't have a universe. A little to the left, a little to the right, you don't have a solar system. For that matter, you know, even um, the Earth, if it was like just even a little bit closer to the sun, it would get too hot. Matter of fact, the rotation would be affected by the gravitational of the sun, and it would then lock us into orbit. It would no longer turn. If we were a little bit further away, we'd be too cold. Uh, you just begin to look at all the physical parameters, and we recognize that all of them are what? Just right. That's why some astronomers jokingly call it the Goldilocks universe, you know, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. The third one, real quickly, and this one's a little more technical, is that when we look at the structure of the cell in every living creature and the DNA code, that one argues for something. When we talk about a code, we talk about what? A code giver, right? And so the amount of bits and bytes and information in just the simplest living cell and in every cell in your body is something that is like master programming. And um, since Stephen Meyer lives in Seattle, the Discovery Institute is there, he uses an example. Bill Gates has said that the amount of digital information in just DNA uh, is obviously coded with a code that's more advanced than any code that we have ever created at Microsoft. Probably true, given Microsoft. Anyway, that's another joke for another time, but it illustrates again that whether you look at the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, or the digital code that we find in life, it is really, in a sense, a return to the God hypothesis. This is not exactly what uh, the scientists expected, but what we are finding more and more is, as we learn more about science, the arguments for the existence of God are improving, not decreasing. And if nothing else, don't we live just in a great time? And doesn't it make you want to go back to the ICR Discovery Center to learn a little bit more? Parker? (laughs) 